This is EnergyCast, and I'm Jay Dowenhauer. Today we're talking to ClearPath, a DC think tank with roots here in the Carolinas. I'm warning you, this one will get political, so if you want to skip my monologue and avoid possibly getting your feelings hurt, skip to 540. First of all, my opinions and those who I've interviewed are not the same. I welcome all points of view, which is what I believe differentiates myself from other energy-related programs. I've got to tell you, I've been waiting for this one since I started banking episodes about two months ago. On this opening monologue, I'm going to talk about politics, the media, and the unfair bias that I hope we will eventually overcome. Like many of you, in some points in my past, I voted Republican. Yeah, and like many of you, I'm sure the media may Makes you feel like this when you admit that. Hold on, I think I hear the bell lady from Game of Thrones. Shame! Shame! Why is this? Shame. Didn't the country elect a Republican president? Isn't Congress majority Republican? And aren't there 33 Republican governors? A record 68 out of 98 state legislative chambers are Republican. I could go on, but but you get the picture. But why is it when I turn on the TV, I feel like I've never felt so lonely in my entire life? You know, it used to not be this way, but you can never imagine a major movie star today saying something like this. A zombie has no will of his own. You see them sometimes. Walking around blindly with dead eyes, following orders, not knowing what they do, not caring. You mean like Democrats? That was from a Bob Hope movie in 1940. Today, someone would get shot for saying that. Now, when Tim Allen recently compared being a conservative in Hollywood to 1930s Germany, that was a little extreme. But you can't deny that an industry that just weathered the Oscars so white controversy has absolutely no diversity when it comes to political thought. I'm a huge movie buff, but I wonder if stars who trash the president, who belongs to my party, realize that they are also insulting all the hardworking people who pay to see their brainless, tone-deficient, derivative remakes. That gets me to the news media. Take it away, Mr. President. I am Barack Obama. Most of you covered me. All of you voted for me. <laughs> I've mentioned in the past that I was in the media and served as a news producer for about four years before I started to work in the energy sector. Local news is not too political, but when I got to Austin, it became much more apparent. I don't think the news media is reporting fake news, and I don't think that they unfairly report the actions of Republicans and conservatives in general. But I do think that when it comes to Democrats, the left, whatever you want to call it, they give that side a pass, or they completely roll over. Sure, Donald Trump's tax records are public interest, but you mean to tell me there was nothing of interest to the financial dealings of the Clinton Foundation? Give me a break. And I wasn't very happy that many of the scandalous dealings within the Democrat Party in 2016, and particularly the way they rolled Bernie Sanders, should have come to light from WikiLeaks. These are things that investigative journalists used to uncover. Where were they? The way I see it, reporters who are completely one-sided like this need to get out of journalism and go be 
partisan political hacks. Your integrity is already gone, and the money will be way better. Now, what does any of this have to do with energy, you ask? I'm getting to that. The news is always getting hammered for being left-wing, and I think I'd like to try to take a shot at explaining why that is. News typically sets up a conflict, say, an environmental group and a big energy corporation, and they usually assign what I like to call victim status to the perceived weaker party. This is lazy journalism, and it's why Rush Limbaugh often calls them the drive-by media. I'm being very sincere here. These are reporters, often overworked and facing difficult deadlines lines sometimes have only minutes to assess a situation, determine who is being wronged, and report the story. It's often easy to sympathize with that person assigned victim status, and this results in biased reporting without a clear understanding of the facts. Regardless, the non-victim is automatically playing the role of the defendant in these cases, so there's already the presumption of guilt. Tying this back to energy, our guest today represents a group that claims that the political left has, quote, owned the debate on energy policy. Policy. I would argue that the left does that many times by very effectively employing victim status style messaging in order to own the debate. I am all for healthy discussion on energy policy, left, right, up, down, and sideways. But I loathe cheap tricks like that, and I'll give some examples in further episodes. To the media, I'm not asking you to be Sean Hannity. I'm just asking you to show more intellectual curiosity when it comes to both sides of the political or ideological debate. And when it comes to this propensity to quickly assign victim status, be smarter because many groups are likely playing you. Okay, enough of that. Our guest today represents the Clear Path Foundation. And when I was developing this show at the beginning of the year, I knew I wanted to make them one of my first guests. Clear Path is a right-leaning think tank, but they are most definitely pro-action on climate change. And that's what I find interesting, that this ideology on climate change is starting to blur across the great political divide. Clear Path was founded by Jay Faison, strong first name if I may say so myself, an entrepreneur who founded an audiovisual company called Snap AV. They have offices in Washington, D.C. and Charlotte, so it was convenient to get over there to their Charlotte office and visit for a few minutes with Rich Powell, ClearPath's managing director of strategy and policy. Rich is an impressive guy. Harvard undergrad, NYU law. We met back in the summer, and I'd say he has a command of energy policy better than most people I know. We discussed what conservative clean energy truly means. I hope you enjoy my interview with Rich Powell. We're here with Rich Powell. Rich, kind of give us your title and what you do here. Sure. So I'm the Managing Director for Policy and Strategy at the ClearPath Foundation and at ClearPath Action. Okay. So my work focuses on uh, strategic grant making, policy analysis, and then I spend a lot of time educating policymakers in D.C. on uh, topics related to energy. Right. And we're based here in Charlotte. Indeed. Uh, you're a foundation kind of after my own heart. Tell yeah. us the folks here in podcast land exactly what ClearPath is here to do. Sure. Uh, so ClearPath promotes what we call conservative of clean energy. Uh, the energy experts who listen to this podcast would probably think of that as baseload clean energy, right? right? So uh, these are things that run 24-7 and produce little or low emissions. So those are uh, nuclear power, uh, fossil fuels with carbon capture technology, uh, natural gas on its own, uh, hydropower. And then we have a platform of 
innovation, right? We don't think we have all the technology that's needed to fully clean up the global energy supply, and so we'd like to see um, significant new technologies be developed, like advanced nuclear reactors, second-gen carbon capture and utilization uh, gear, and grid-scale storage. So things that would actually take intermittent renewables like wind and solar and make them into base load energy. Uh, the foundation is uh, is conservative base, and you say on the website, the left has owned the debate. What do you really mean by that? What does that mean, the left has owned the yeah. debate on energy policy? So I think the left has a very particular vision of the world, which is, uh, you know, climate change is a, is a very important, urgent threat. And the only way to solve climate change is through a much more distributed, sort of soft energy kind of system with a lot of wind and a lot of solar and a lot of energy efficiency and some electric vehicles and <laughs> mass transit. And that's what we're going to have, bicycles right. and stuff. Right. And, you know, unfortunately, I think that conservatives have responded to that debate largely by saying, you know, there's no problem. So keeping our existing energy supply exactly as it is is just fine. So they, they responded to that kind of, frankly, ridiculous vision of the energy supply, if you know anything about energy, and said, there's no problem. Let's keep exactly what we have. When in fact, there's a conservative way to respond to some of the same issues that liberals are pointing to, right? Like that we have problems with air pollution. We have problems with carbon emissions, things like that. And you can respond to those in a, in a way with technology that are much more reliable and much lower cost than the kind of, I like to call it like the, the Whole Foods version of the energy markets that you know, sort of the liberals have, uh, have sort of created and promoted. You know, there's, there's a Walmart version of that, right? There's a low cost, highly scalable way to go about this that's going to be a lot more reliable. And that's what, we, that's what we promote. And that's what we think the conservative movement would be well served in promoting, both because it's the right thing to do, it's the right policy. And frankly, it's good politics as well, right? You, it's better to have a, to be on offense and say, no, 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 we have a better solution to the same issue than to say, well, there's, no, there's nothing here to worry about. And let's talk about climate change, and that's really the reason that I'm doing this. Uh, do you think it just takes too much of the air, no pun intended, out of the energy debate? It's yeah. always about climate change, yeah, right? Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, and you know, it's become such a highly politicized issue, unfortunately. Uh, we, we like to say, uh, I don't care if you agree or disagree on, on climate change about this issue, that, that really doesn't matter for the sort of, sort of technologies that we promote, right? I think anybody who is a just sort of calm, fact-based thinker about our energy system sees value in nuclear energy, right? We see value in 24-7 clean energy supplies where you can keep 18 months of fuel on site, and by the way, that contributes to our ability to sort of safely handle nuclear energy and nuclear material around the world. That's sort of a no-brainer, right? Like, it doesn't really matter if we agree or disagree on climate change. We work actively with Senate offices that really, you know, they, they don't touch the climate topic at all, or they talk about it negatively, but they support nuclear energy, right? And so right. we think there's a lot of opportunities like that to sort of build bridges around this. And you're right, people are too wrapped up in this, well, do you believe, do you not believe, and requiring people to say that they believe and have a come to Jesus moment about all that. We're not into any of that. It seems like it becomes almost uh, less an intellectual thing and just really more of an, an emotional debate, right? I, yeah, I think that's right. I think it's fair to characterize that. I mean, we live in an age of tribal politics, right? And so this has become a uh, this has become a tribal signifier, right? Part of the war paint that the left wears is that climate change is the 
most important problem in the world. And part of the war paint that the right wears is that, you know, it's a, uh, well, I guess now we're saying that it's a Chinese hoax. Uh, and <laughs> right. we don't think that this should be part of the war paint, right? Yeah, we just yeah. think that this should be something that everybody gets a lot calmer about, puts in it the right context, and we have a rational discussion about energy policy and technology. ClearPath is a conservative group that subscribes to man-made climate change. And then there are Democrats like West Virginia's Jim Justice, who are true climate change skeptics. I'm going to cue a Ghostbusters theme of the cats and dogs living together here. Volcanoes, the dead rising from the grave. Human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria. Are we just, are we maybe getting post-political here on this? It's really seems to be crossing party lines. What do you think about that? That's a good question. Yeah, I think that there are there are folks on both sides of the ideological debate, on both sides of the political debate. Maybe we are getting post-political about this. I also think that just, you know, you're seeing kind of, now that campaign season is over, <laughs> I think that overall the rhetoric around this issue is already kind of diminishing and cooling down. I think it's this is going to be less of an issue this year uh, than it had been, and I think you're going to see a lot of conservatives softening their stance a little bit. And now that, you know, we're in the driver's seat, it's our responsibility to develop. And, you know, if, if we don't like the Clean Power Plan and ClearPath doesn't like the Clean Power Plan, we're all for it being um, repealed. But what are we going to replace it with, right? Like, what is the proactive, optimistic, conservative vision of how clean energy goes down? We think that that's heavily based on innovation, finding new technologies, making smart investments in things that we already know work really well and add to the reliability of our grid. We think there's a clear conservative case for all that, and we're going to be helping people you know, chart that out. Let's get real deep into some philosophy here. Why do you think it is that the political left accepts man-made climate change and the right has historically just been so skeptical? What do you think really is going on there? Well, I think that the right has been skeptical of climate change in part because the left has used a number of different arguments to push for the same solution set, and climate change is only the most recent of those arguments. So the left has been pushing against nuclear energy for quite a long time, right? And that was primarily in the early days because nuclear energy was seen as such a good resource that it was going to facilitate unnecessary economic growth. Economic growth is bad because it gobbles up nature, and therefore we can't let that happen. And I, I kid you not, this is still on the Sierra Club's website to justify their anti-nuclear stance. Mm -hmm. And so then, once climate change becomes real, and liberals are still not really accepting nuclear energy, they start to question like, well, is this really about carbon or is it really about a view of the world where we need to shut down all the centralized power and have less economic growth and energy ration and all that, right? I think there's a, there's a skepticism of the underlying motives around How deep thing. does it go, really? I mean, if you kill coal, they're saying natural gas is good, and then now it's natural gas is the boogeyman. Yeah, I suspect it's going to go right down the, yeah, I suspect it'll go right down the line. I mean, I, you, know, the, the, you know, it'll be the, It'll be the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. And meanwhile, a lot of the left is not lightened up on its opposition to to nuclear, and so they're, you know, and this is the perverse thing, you know, in in uh, you know in a number of states, folks are advocating that nuclear plants be shut down, and then those are being replaced by sources that emit more, right? Big so, carbon. Yeah. yeah, right. Yeah. So, um, you know, not that all those sources are bad, but that you know, I mean, that that doesn't make a lot of sense, right? right. It's not kind of a rational, holistic belief system. Right? What is this really about? Like, why are both sides really just 
so political. Rush Limbaugh, a lot of times, every time he talks about climate change, and I'm sure you've caught him once or twice when he's going on his little uh, rants about that, he always says it's a tool of those in power on the left to control our lives. That really just is more about if you can control climate policy, then you're, yeah. you're, you're able to really beat down industry yeah. and, and, and really have a say in what yeah. industry is doing and, yeah. and really what that may be what it's all about, yeah. in addition to maybe some environmental goals, yeah. right? You know, I mean, I think, uh, as in everything, right, Rush exaggerates, right? Sure. Uh, so, but, you <laughs> Ask know, my dad that, yeah. <laughs> I think there's, you know, like I'm everything, sorry, there's, there's, there's also a grain of truth, right? Uh, you know, I think that there are lots of folks on the environmental left who are really just genuinely concerned about the issue of carbon pollution, right? And increasingly, those folks are supportive of an all-of-the-above clean energy approach, like the one that ClearPath supports, but that's not yet a universally shared view. And I think people who've been in the movement on the left for a long time and started in a very different place, which was much more this kind of anti-big, anti-centralized, pro-soft energy stance. As I said, climate's a, a recent thing for them. What really mo motivates them is that much earlier thing. And I'm not sure it's really about government controlling their lives, but it definitely is about a very different view of the energy system and a different view of the benefits of economic growth. Uh, clear path does, I guess, consider itself a lobby group, right? I mean, you are doing... ClearPath Action considers itself okay. a lobby group. I just need to be careful for the lawyers, right? Very so, good, so very we good. we have a C3 and a C4 organization. Make sure that yeah. that's on time. Yeah. Right. <laughs> we heard a lot about candidate Trump and his crusade against lobbyists. I read uh, the January 28th executive order that was passed on lobbying ethics, which bans executive appointees from lobbying less than five years after they leave office to the agency they serve. Uh, good idea? I think that's a really tough question, mm -hmm. right? It sounds great. Yeah. It sounds great. The problem is that some of the smartest people in Washington are lobbyists, right? We're a conservative organization. I come from the private sector. I sort of believe in markets, and I tend to believe that people go where they're best compensated for the skill set that they have, and often that's lobbying on a particular issue. So I would tend not to draw as black and white a line about that, um, because I think you end up with folks, I'm not going to say folks of a different caliber, I'm just going to say you're unnecessarily narrowing your talent pool when you do things like that. I understand why they did it, though, because my nuanced view here is very hard as a kind of political, you know, slogan or position, right? So thankfully, I'm not a politician. I'd be a terrible one. So, you know, I, And a lot of that is geared toward these elected officials who become lobbyists or anything. But I would argue that probably who's more dangerous are what you call the hired guns. And I'll give an example. I had a colleague back in Texas, worked for the coal industry, told me he lost a fight on a bill, and a hired gun lobbyist who opposed the bill, walked up to him in the cafeteria, and you know, cafeteria is always right. where they lick their wounds yeah. after they're done with, right? Walked up to him in the cafeteria and said, if you want me to represent you next session, I'll be happy to do so, right? So, so I think Joe Public is thinking, my, my goodness, it almost isn't even about the policy. It's just how effective are your are your hired guns? How effective are your are your lobbyists? Sure. I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, in all cases, right, some some people are just, you know, they're just entirely transactional and they're kind of willing to represent any, any viewpoint. I do think, though, I mean, a lot of folks, 
folks, and you know, we've encountered a lot of folks in the kind of the, the DC lobbying community. We have an office there. I think a lot of folks are very genuine in um, their viewpoints, and they sort of don't take on clients who you know have uh, issues that they kind of they don't agree with or don't accord with their overall beliefs. And the best lobbyists are the ones who are very very fact based, right? Because you you get burned out quickly in that industry if people don't see you as a legitimate fact based messenger, right? If you're just a purely transactional person who's willing to come in and represent anybody and say anything um, in meetings with policymakers, policymakers catch on to that pretty quickly, right? right? So, yeah, I mean, of course, there are some people that, you know, I don't think should serve in an administration, but I sort of feel like that should just be part of the standard hiring process to see, well, is this like a good, fact-based, honest messenger? I don't know that we've got to draw this sharp line around lobbying to make that same thing, but I understand the politics of, of why they did it. Right. I represent the coal industry when it first got started. It's been a rough decade for them. What are the opportunities for coal right now, you sure. think? Yeah. Well, we just spent a terrific week out in Wyoming with Governor Meade um, yes. and his economic development staff. They are they take a very long view on coal. You know, As you know, Wyoming is the number one exporter of coal in the country. Um, they've got terrific low sulfur powder river basin coal PRB. out there. Yep. Just a couple hundred feet under the ground. They can have massive kind of open mines to mine it. Highly efficient, highly automated. It's been very, very good to Wyoming, right? We saw a number of high schools, $100 million high schools made with, um, you know, uh, BLM, uh, you know, coal, coal lease payments, right? It's very, very good to Wyoming, very important for them. They take a long view, right? They, uh, they see continuing to use coal in an environmentally responsible manner as the path forward for the industry, right? So I think Governor Mead said just this last week in a speech, I think to the Southern States Energy Board that as much as we all want President Trump to be reelected, we don't know that he's going to be reelected, and we don't know that we're going to have Republican presidents in the long term, and so we can't rely on you know this kind of temporary respite for the coal industry that we're going to get over the next couple of years. So we need a strategy for using all our energy resources that is robust to any administration, and that strategy is technology, right? right. So finding the ways that we can make carbon capture technologies work better and work cheaper, and finding ways more important that we can use that captured carbon um, better and more cheaply. So they're doing really inspiring stuff out in Wyoming around alternative uses for that carbon stream. Obviously, there's enhanced oil recovery. They've got really brilliant scientists working on all kinds of other uses. They're talking about coal refineries the same way you would have oil refineries and what are all the other things that you could make from that very valuable mix of chemicals that's in coal. So uh, it was pretty inspiring to see both the long-term perspective they have on the policy front and the really interesting stuff they're doing with technology. And that's really, it used to be just carbon capture and storage. Now I think the terminology is now carbon capture utilization and storage. This that's idea right. of that's right. getting useful commodities yeah, out of coal. Right. Yeah. We actually went to one of the oil fields. It's an old oil field, right? Uh -huh. As of uh, maybe seven years ago, it was pumping 100 barrels a day. Devon Energy took a stream of CO2 that ExxonMobil was producing in another site, which is piped down to them, and they're now using that CO2, they're pumping it underground for enhanced oil recovery in this old field is now producing, I think, 25 times as, as much oil as it was before, all because it's basically using this valuable waste product from another process, this CO2, and is injecting it back underground. And to lift the of, oil. To yeah. lift the oil back 
up. And I mean, think of that. I mean, it's an amazing story of opportunity. So the state of Ohio, sorry, the state of Wyoming, thinks of this old oil field as essentially a brownfield, right? Very uneconomic, lots of old equipment and stuff lying around. Thinks of it as an environmental problem. But then you've got this whole new development coming in. You've got new jobs. You've got significant new revenues for the state. And you've got this stream, which is also uh, going to help them clean up the land and get rid of all this old, you know, unused oil infrastructure. It's, it's just kind of a win-win for everybody. And it, you know, it, you know, it stores uh, some of the carbon permanently underground to boot. So, you know, it's kind of work win win win, right? Yeah, win win win. A transition to natural gas around 2000, shale revolution was starting to happen around that time. It's been phenomenal. And then natural gas started replacing coal mm -hmm. for a lot of power generation. How do you feel about that mix? That Do you think that maybe gas over replaced coal? Mm -hmm. uh, or do you think that was just the way it was going to go down? That's a great question. So I'm not sure exactly what that means, kind of over replaced. I mean, I think what's been terrific. Well, they were, you know, basically retrofitting yeah, coal sure. plants. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so I mean, I think what's terrific about that is that we found a low cost market based way to sort of clean up part of the energy supply, right? So that part of the whole story I love, right? And I think, you know, it really demonstrates the power of innovation. Most folks don't realize that whole shale gas revolution never would have happened without the DOE and federal energy funding, right? right. So $427 million in 1980 and 1990, which would be billions today, was put into horizontal drilling technologies and hydraulic fracturing technologies and diamond drill bits and all that stuff. So I think it's a really powerful demonstration of the value of our approach, which is a kind of technology and innovation first. So that whole part of the story is good. It does give me a little concern, sort of as a conservative, I, I like a sort of a balanced portfolio and a lower risk. I, I have some concern about sort of monoculture, right, and, and becoming over-reliant on one fuel source and, and part of the power supply. And so, you know, I'm not sure what the right, I mean, the way our wholesale markets are set up right now, we don't actually place any value on diversity or sort of reliability, right? We just kind of think, well, what can supply the power the most cheaply one or two days ahead? Some of the markets, we have a capacity market which tries to get at sort of at that reliability question, but kind of almost anything can participate in that capacity market, so it doesn't really serve that function. So I think we probably do need to come up with some structure um, that focuses on fuel diversity and reliability, and maybe that's a change to the capacity markets in the wholesale states. I mean, the, the our, down here in the southeast, this, we do that anyway, right? I mean, we have integrated resource plans and, and a process where they have to take into account that sort of stuff, which is why we're building nuclear down here. Even though it looks expensive in the short term, we know it's a long-run good investment to have a diverse power supply. I'm not sure the best route for that in the rest of the country, but I know the you know, regulated system down here in the southeast seems to continue to work reasonably well. And part of the mission that I'm on here is really just that search for truth. You know, what yeah, right. is yeah. what is the portfolio? Where do all these great energy sources, all the, the, the fantastic technology, where does it, how do we utilize all this sort of thing? Yeah. Now, when I was talking to representatives of both the gas industry and the coal industry in West Virginia, one of the things that came up that I don't think we hear too much about is this idea of exporting, uh, exporting natural gas, sure. uh, liquefied natural yeah, gas. Yeah. You yeah. can get such, such a better price for it yeah. in Asia, you say, and then, then, then over here, if you're complaining about the gas prices being sure. too low, yeah. uh, West Virginia, they say, exports 50% of America's coal, mm -hmm. you know, comes just out of that state sure. alone. And yeah. so, hey, you know, yeah. if you're you're getting a bunch of static, if you will, why not just send it somewhere where sure. they, they want it? Yeah. And what's stopping that progress, yeah. you think? Well, so we're, we're very pro-exports of, uh, of liquefied natural gas. The, uh, you know, I think the previous administration had been a little bit slow through the Department of Energy to, to, uh, to approve those export terminals, which in our view is, is, is pretty crazy. I mean, um, not only would 
it be good for the domestic industry to sort of hopefully relieve some of the glut we currently have and get those prices inching back up. But it's also, of course, a, a really geo, geopolitical priority to get more of Europe off of Russian gas and onto American gas, right? That would vastly improve our situation in the North Atlantic. So we're very supportive of that. I think that the new administration is likely to streamline those processes, and we're not too worried about that. Coal exports, I think, are, are the bigger issue and the bigger problem because most of what's holding that back, to my understanding, especially on the West Coast, is local environmental opposition to those coal to those new coal export terminals. Those and, terminals, and, right. and those and state opposition to, you know, the railroads and everything that would have to um, be put in place to get the get that coal, say, out of Wyoming and, and to those terminals. Frankly, I'm not really sure how uh, how you overcome that, right? I mean, I, I'd love to see some kind of a grand bargain where, for example, we invest in carbon capture technology on whatever plants that uh, that coal goes to and is used at, and in exchange we lower the local opposition, and that way we can keep the coal flowing and keep the mines open and all that, and we still get the environmental benefits and the technology wherever the stuff's developed. I don't know if that's South Korea or Japan or wherever. Saying we're gonna invest in foreign power plants, that's a, it's, it's a tougher political thing to do, so I'm not sure that idea has any legs, but I would love to see some kind of a bargain like that happen, because I, otherwise I don't know how you get around that local. Yeah, well, I see, look, it's all one Earth. No, it's all one Gaia, yeah, sure. as yeah. I used to say. <laughs> uh, let's talk about a little bit about nuclear, and my question was originally, uh, why do environmentalists hate nuclear? What's <laughs> <laughs> well, a good question. What you know, I, I shared what I mean, Captain Planet hated yeah, nuclear. Yeah, yeah, by the yeah. way, I am Captain Planet, and we've got a message for Duke Nukem and the rest of the eco-villain scum. Clean up or clear out. I mean, you know, what's still on the Sierra Club site, I think, is driving a lot of that, which is this early fear that nature means no humans, right? And, you know, the more humans, the more communities, the more roads and stuff, the less nature. And nuclear is such a great power source that it facilitates all that growth. And so I think there were some kind of really early folks in the environmental movement. I think now it's more driven by a, just a pure fear of radiation. And, you know, that fear is most of the recent scientific literature shows that fear significantly overblown, right? We see danger in very, very small doses of radiation from nuclear power plants, and we ignore the small doses we get every time we eat a banana, or go near the Rocky Mountains, or get on an airplane, right? I mean, in France, they consider, they have a, a more rational view of radiation, and so they consider air, airline attendants to be radiation workers, because they're getting roughly the same amount of radiation flying around in airplanes than they are working in nuclear power plants. Most people don't realize that. And so, and you know, it's not like every airline attendant is getting cancer or something like that. Small doses of radiation are actually okay, totally okay for us. But that's a really hard statement to make, right? Like people just have a fear of radiation. And I think it's a, it's going to be a very long-term, almost societal change that's going to be required to decrease that level of fear and to make people more appropriately understand, yeah, there's some risks to nuclear power plants, just like there are risks to every other kind of power plant. Solar installers fall off the roof sometimes and die, yeah. right? More people die in the solar industry than die in the nuclear power industry. Most people don't realize that, right? But until we have a more rational view of the risks and all these things, now of course, all and that's the, part of what you're talking about about taking yeah. control of the message, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, Clearpath advocates for hydroelectric. Yep. Yep. What's the potential there that hasn't been explored yet? Depending on how you look at it, there there's huge potential in things like run of the river hydro. A lot of the major dam plays in the U.S. have already been sort of um, done and, and created, but lots of run of the river stuff is available. There's huge potential in pumped storage. 
hydro. So that could be like, for example, taking a old coal mine and moving water up and down in the coal mine and then using that to power hydroelectric facilities as a way to store large amounts of storage. There's huge potential for major new hydro in Canada, which could then be imported into the US through high voltage transmission lines. So we're interested in that. I think uh, the Department of Energy just released a report last year called Hydrovision that thought we could increase US domestic hydro by as much as 50% by 2050. So that'd be about another, I believe another 50 gigawatts. And we think everything should be done to develop that resource. You went to Harvard, <laughs> undergrad, yep. very impressive. The question I always ask people who went to Harvard was, was it hard? <laughs> <laughs> Depended on the course. Depended right. on the course. Yeah. Uh, I'm going somewhere with that. It brings me to education. It seemed yeah. like Hillary Clinton, uh, her answer for the coal miners in West Virginia was they need to take a computer class. Do you think that's why she lost the election? Just, just really didn't have a way to connect with that? Yeah. I mean, I think liberals too often gloss over the fact that this new economy doesn't actually work for everybody. Right? That people get hurt when you make major transitions. And whether that's an energy transition or a manufacturing transition or whatever, people get hurt, right? And the simple answer of just, well, you gotta retrain and move is really hard for a lot of people. I mean, if you've got a if you got a house in a generationally poor community and that's your only asset, it's gonna be really hard to sell that thing. You're never gonna be able to afford something similar, you know, if you move to a big city to get a job in the computer industry or whatever. It, transitions are really hard. You know, I think everybody needs to be more honest about that. And I think President Trump made a great deal of political hay by, by being honest about that, right? And pointing out the, the pain real people were, were going through. I'm gonna go through a lightning round of different energy technologies. I just want you to do word association. Natural gas. Great. Crude oil. We should get more of it through enhanced oil recovery. Good. Yeah. Nuclear. Underutilized, underappreciated. Coal. Tremendous opportunity in carbon capture. Wind. Great if we can find a way to stop the market distortions. Solar. Terrific. Lines up better with grid demand than wind. Amazing cost decreases. Probably about good on the subsidies. We're probably at the right point where it can commercialize itself. Hydroelectric. Tremendously underutilized. Lots of potential, especially for purely deregulatory uh, pathways. Geothermal. Really cool. Don't know enough about it. Um, understand there's lots of potential in hot rocks. <laughs> Stay tuned. We'll be talking about that. <laughs> electric vehicles. Great. I drive one. What do you have? A Nissan Leaf. I've got my Tesla Model 3 on back order. We'll see if I ever get that. Oh, look at you. Yeah. Yeah. And then nuclear fusion. What's that? Oh, <laughs> super, super promising. It's always been 50 years away. I hope it stops being 50 years away and we actually get it someday. So, some of the West Coast startups are really promising, uh, Helion and Trialpha. Okay, Rich yeah. Powell, thank you so much. This is great. Thanks for the time. Take care. Well, there you have it, my interview with Rich Powell, Managing Director of Strategy and Policy for ClearPath, a conservative energy think tank. This was one of my quickest interviews, but we used everything. Rich was kind enough to squeeze me in during a very busy day. We didn't have time to snap a picture, but I'll post something on the website. And again, the views of those on this program are entirely mine and theirs. We want a free discussion where sometimes opinions line up and sometimes they don't. The point is that they are heard. If this was your first time checking out this program, trust me, it's not always like AM talk radio. But with a subject matter like this, I couldn't resist. And if you really want to hear an honest political monologue, you can do no better than Brett Easton Ellis's March 27th episode of his podcast. A lifetime progressive, his comments have been picked up in the media, and when I heard it, I really had to tip my hat to the author of American Psycho and Less Than Zero. It's my dream that we can all start listening more and slowly begin to blend our red and blue country into a beautiful shade of purple.
Special thanks this week to my wife, Ashley, who helped me thread the needle on my opening monologue. Thanks again to Rich Powell, Anita Armas, Darren Good, and the entire team at ClearPath for helping set up this week's interview. Music was produced by Sean Stroop, who also played in the band at my wedding. And you can find him at Stroop, that's S-T-R-O-O-P-E, Loops. Our website is energy-cast.com. And of course, you can reach me at host at energy-cast.com. That wraps up things for this week. Please join us next time when we head over to Tennessee for a two-part look at cellulosic biofuels and the progress we're seeing there. I'm Jay Downhauer. We'll see you next time.